Hello, entrepreneurs. Hello, founders. Good morning. Welcome back to the podcast. We have a very special guest for you this morning, someone that I really like speaking to. I did a great podcast with this founder a couple months back, and I expect much of the same this morning. I do have my co-host, Dan Doran, here with me in the middle of my screen. Dan, good morning. Hey, good morning, everyone. Good morning, Matt. Okay, so we do our little preamble because I know the audience likes to hear from you too. And I honestly like the chance to get to learn from you. So there's a couple of things that we thought we might chat about before we welcome Lori into the studio. What does it mean to have a really powerful lead customer? I was thinking I had an entrepreneur in my mind. I won't say who they are. And I was thinking about the lead customer journey they're on right now. Why can that be such a game changer? You know, it um, always brings me back when I think of lead customers. Uh, the first time I sort of heard this term was from a really cool guy, a professor of mine at MIT. And uh, he used to talk about the power of a lead customer. And uh, so he sort of defined it for us. And uh, But he talked it in terms of innovation. He was a, he was a sort of big innovation thinker. And when I mean big, I mean, he, he, th he thought about broad-based innovation more so than anything. Um, but what he used to say is that uh, innovation uh, comes from customers. And, uh, you know, we all know that. And in fact, he did some studies and his studies at the time, this was a very long time ago, um, really sort of drove the conclusion that about 70% of product innovation comes from customers. And so, you know, uh, Matt, when you and I help new entrepreneurs, we always tell them to cozy up to potential customers as much as they can, as soon as they can. And um, and and you think a little bit about uh, other topics we're going to talk about today around, you know, can you get the value proposition right out the door? And typically that doesn't happen. And uh, who helped guide you to the right value proposition? That was and exactly my follow-up. My follow-up was, do you okay so let's say innovation comes from the customer right do you let them take you wherever they want to go because you are balancing trying to get the value proposition right in the real world and we have a, a program that's actually coming back in january that helps people get the value problem right as soon as possible and so how do you kind of balance the lead customer journey do you literally let them take you anywhere or do you have to tamper or taper the value proposition that you're trying to build in the real world with what the customer is asking you for. Yeah, you know, we, uh, we did a study a few years ago, uh, and it wasn't a huge study. We talked to nine uh, tech founders from, uh, and they were all associated with East Valley Ventures in town here. So they had, uh, Jerry Pond had invested in them all. And um, we were trying to understand uh, whether they had a balanced value proposition. And what we mean by that. Is, is we drew a triangle with sort of a pendulum hanging down from the top. And, uh, and we got the, we got the uh, entrepreneurs to sort of place their pendulum either in the middle or to the right or to the left. Uh, and, uh, you know, to the left means their value proposition was more balanced towards the customer. To the right meant they were, their value proposition was more balanced towards the company. What I mean by that is... You know, can you make money delivering this bloody value proposition, right? And uh, and you won't be surprised to find that the majority of, of that small sample, their value proposition was balanced more towards the customer, which meant the customer was getting good value. Uh, 
um, but the company was struggling to make money. And, uh, and so uh, your point is a really good one. The customers will uh, take advantage of us in some ways if we let them or if we don't build the right relationship with them. Uh, and, uh, you know, they will, they will get good value out of you and your, and your, and your products and services, your software. Um, but uh, founders, especially founders that don't have experience like, you know, like Lori has, um, don't understand their costs and how their costs are going to evolve. And so they don't build enough gross margin or margin in their products and they, and they wake up and they just don't, they just can't make money. And, uh, and so building a balanced value proposition is really important and finding a lead customer that understands that and is, and, you know, recognizes that there's a partnership here and everybody needs to survive and, and do well with this this innovation is really important. That's not easy to do. So how do we nurture that relationship? Is it okay for me to ask, let's say I land uh, an enterprise customer that's that's my lead customer of that size. Can I ask that customer to be a part of my sales cycle? Am I allowed to do that? How do you nurture that relationship? <laughs> Sounds like a loaded question for Lori, um, but uh, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think the uh, we always say that a part uh, that working with um, customers or building these kind of partnerships with customers is a three-legged stool. One leg is they, you know, they have to get value from it. Uh, the other leg is you have to get value from it. Those are the obvious ones. The third leg. Um, is you should be innovating together. And that's the sort of notion around evolving the product together in a direction that's good for everybody and and ultimately is um, you know representative of a value proposition that will work in the market, not just for that customer. That's you know that takes investment, that takes time, that takes energy, that takes building relationships, that takes having long-term views of where the business is going. And uh, if you can build those things with a lead customer, my, my view is um, it's going to get you to market quicker in a less risky fashion and help you build products that are viable in the market and have some, you know, have some sustainability. The three-legged stool idea is, is actually really smart. I can, I can picture that in my head. If I was the customer and I'm being asked to go on the sales journey with you as your lead customer, what am I getting out of that? Why would I do that for you? Well, typically you get, um, you get to drive the design of the product so that it meets your needs. Um, and, uh, in many cases you get it at a reduced price in some fashion. And, uh, and, you know, and, and I always say to people, make sure your lead customer commits to helping you sell your product to your next customer. And, uh, and that's not always easy to do. In many cases, uh, you know, there's a competitive uh, issues that you have to overcome. But if your lead customer is committed to helping you find your next customer, and, I, and really, I always say, at the table. They're not hmm. just making a cold introduction through email. They're at the table because uh, they speak the language and, and they actually speak the language of results. So if they sit at the table and go, we are saving this much money every month using this product. Um, you know, there's nobody better than to tell that story than, than a customer. And, uh, um, 
you know, there's a great example of a company in St. John that sells a product into the oil industry. It's a, it's a productivity solution. Mm-hmm. And they had a lead customer. And, uh, but they never asked the lead customer to help them sell their second customer. And it took them five years to find their second customer. Hmm. And that lead customer, I, I talked to the CEO one day. I said, why didn't you help them sell it? He said, they never asked me. I would have been happy to help them sell it. Hmm. Um, and so building that relationship is really important. And you have to sort of do it up front um, and evolve it and manage it and maintain it. I wonder how many of those sales calls are still happening virtually. Maybe this is a question for Lori when we get Lori in the studio, but I wonder if those big, if those big sales calls, are we totally comfortable with them happening now virtually now that we're, you know, I think even raising money, I'm hearing big stats about even raising money. It wasn't possible virtually pre COVID and now it's totally possible. That's just a curiosity of mine. Um, couple minutes before we bring Lori into the studio, what about this word we hear often as we're building companies, this idea of pivoting. I went to the University of New Brunswick campus to watch you and a colleague of yours present on the pivot. Correct me if I'm wrong, maybe there was a little bit of an academic approach there too, but you were studying real world businesses. So what was the, um, do you wanna tee up a little bit of that research about what, uh, what a pivot is and why it's an important thing to consider? Or yeah, not consider? There's a raging debate, uh, <laughs> as much as us tech founding type people rage, uh, there's a raging debate around um, pivoting, whether it's good or bad, you know, whether it's something that's a, a raw necessity of finding the right value proposition in the market, or whether it's sort of an evil necessity um, and a very costly one associated with building a, building a business, especially in the tech space. Uh, we did a study where we talked to 42 uh, angel investors from across the country. Um, and we wanted the perspective from the investor, not the entrepreneur. It was an interesting study. And uh, one of the things we learned is that uh, their companies that they invested in, on average, pivoted at two and a half times, a little less, 2.45 times, I believe, within two years. Hmm. That was a, to me, that that was a real reflection of risk in the industry because pivots cost money and take time, and uh, and so you know I think founders ought to be working really hard to avoid pivoting. On one hand, on the other hand, it, it, some might just view it as a really important part of the journey to getting to a great value proposition. I'm interested to hear Lori's views on that as well, but. Uh, uh, so, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I don't like people that say, you know, uh, pivoting is, is a necessary part of this industry. It's something that you should, you know, pivot, they say pivot fast, pivot off and pivot fast. Uh, in my view, pivoting is very expensive. And uh, uh, although it can be valuable, it ought to be avoided as well, if you can. <laughs> Hard to avoid it. But uh, there's probably a lot that goes into it, though, from the the founder's personality. We're going to talk to Lori about different kinds of tech founders and specifically sales focused founders. But there's probably for someone like me who has really itchy feet, I can see me being really susceptible to customer demand and pivoting. But for someone like me, I'd I'd probably have to tamper myself a little bit and say, look, okay, stay on this path because, you know, you may come up with... um, come up against shiny looking things and the customer may say this and you go, Oh, okay. That's, that's maybe something I should add here. 
but we really need to focus on getting the value proposition right in the real world. And like I said, we'll we'll talk to our audience about a program that you've been running since 2017 that's coming back in January to help early stage founders get the value prop right. Is that probably the fundamental way you avoid a pivot is just trying to get that right in your validation stage? Yeah, you know, uh, you bring up a good point. When you build a really strong relationship with your early customers, um, they're going to come to you with all kinds of problems you can solve for them. <laughs> yep. and, uh, um, and and so we always say, no, 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 no. You know, you got to stay focused. And uh, if you're going to move to, an, you know, to building solutions for problems that you didn't identify early in some form of pivot or extension of your product, you need to be really careful about that because you have to deliver on your early promise first or decide to go somewhere else. But you need to you need to maintain a level of focus because your resources are really expensive and scarce and uh, and, and so are your sales so are your sales uh, so is your sales capacity mm-hmm. and so I'm really looking forward to talking about sales because um, it's rare we have a tech company with a sales focused founder like we have this morning and uh, um, typically we don't and uh, and so you know how how we drive a sales focus into these types of startups, especially tech startups, I think is a really important um, thing that we ought to be looking at to help uh, manage the risk, particularly for the founders and the investors. Yep, no doubt. With that being said, let's mix in the founder here. This is why we're here. Lori, welcome to the studio. Thank you. Nice to be here. Nice to see you both, Dan and Matt. Yeah, it is. Okay, so we always start this way. there's a lot of different entrepreneurs listening to the show, different stages of their journey, different sectors, but I've kind of been obsessing over this Mike Maples framework. Dan has heard me talk about this so many times, he's probably sick of it, but Mike Maples Jr., really successful investor, he said that every company, specifically in tech, has three almost breakthrough moments. There's the original insight breakthrough, which leads to the product breakthrough, which hopefully leads to a growth breakthrough. And Dan has heard me talk about this probably once a day for the last few weeks because I thought it was a really slick framework. Can we just talk a little bit about your entrepreneurship origin story? I think early stage founders are going to be curious about how you got to where you are right now, but specifically how the Four Eyes financial journey started and start anywhere that you feel is relevant on your journey. Just tell us about that origin story. Sure. Um, I think it might be helpful actually to start. I've been an entrepreneur for a long time. I've had multiple companies and Four Eyes isn't the first. So my entrepreneurial journey started before starting Four Eyes. And I think it's an important, um, I think it's an important question, Matt, is, um, you know, what drives a person to start an innovation business, (laughs) you know? Um, it sounds fun. Um, you know, probably a lot of work and some risk. And I think people take all those things into consideration, but certainly it is, um, an ambitious endeavor. And so, um, a little bit about my background. Um, I would, you know, if somebody asked me, you know, what do you do? I wouldn't say I'm the founder and CEO of four eyes. I would say I'm an entrepreneur first and foremost, and the, the difference there is entrepreneurs want to build something and they want to put it out in the world for other people to use. And that is part of my DNA. 
it's uh, it would it's what drives um, the most important decisions I've made in my life. And um, the you know entrepreneurs see a gap, they see uh, an opportunity, they have the confidence to feel like they can provide a solution that would close that gap or provide a better way. And they're prepared to move through the uncertainty and ambiguity and all of the, you know, all of those things to make it happen. And so for me, my first, uh, the first opportunity that I saw in the marketplace is, uh, I was, uh, I was doing some consulting for, um, the government and tourism. They were looking for product for incentive travel. And hmm. so I went out and, you know, I did a, a scan of the environment. I did uh, research. I, uh, you know, interviewed all of the, the main regions in the province, the main operators who provided product. And I also spent a lot of time researching what motivates people to select destinations for incentive travel. And deeper than that, what motivates the individuals who would win an incentive travel trip, for example, to actually go above and beyond to uh, actually want to, you know, do go the extra mile to win these trips. And, you know, I had some hypotheses going into this research. Um, and it was, you know, my findings were really interesting. And what I discovered is people that typically qualify for these incentive travel trips are the same people, regardless of what the prize is. And so it's something mm -hmm. within them that makes them want to achieve. And based on that, I, you know, I felt like New Brunswick had an opportunity to build product that would attract that type of individual. And there wasn't a product like that available in the province. So um, I said, well, I should create that. <laughs> uh, I had, you know, no experience in that, but that didn't seem to stop me. So I actually went out looking for um, a partner in the business that had experience. I partnered with a, a fellow named Brent Finnamore. He was just starting out doing motivational speaking and some corporate training. Uh, and together we came together and we built a company called Peak Adventures to deliver adventure-based learning and corporate training. And we did that for a decade um, and lots of learnings there. Uh, but this is, this is more about four eyes, but that was my first entrepreneurial endeavor. Uh, from there, I, you know, we started a, a second company, a corporate consulting company, because we saw not only was, you know, our original sort of version of the company was helping individuals um, become better and helping teams become better. And what we realized is you can't make ice cubes in an oven. Um, <laughs> so you have to actually look at the organization, the organization's design, its processes, its ways it makes decisions. And uh, we started a consult consulting company that helped organizations with continuous improvement on the process side of things, on the org design side of things. Um, and actually, that is how I came to discover a need in the investment world for uh, improvements around what I would call interdependence for uh, investors. So typically, investors had a direct brokerage approach. In, you know, they could do it themselves investing, or they would have an advisor, which I would say is totally dependent. 
Um, mm -hmm. And there wasn't really good solution in the marketplace that enabled some level of interdependency for the investor. So you're not completely doing it yourself, but you're, you know, you feel like you've got a bit more knowledge um, and ability to make good choice as as an investor. Um, you know, the bottom line is, uh, you know, the purpose of Four Eyes was to um, improve what it, what is known in the industry. And, and keep in mind, although I was working in the industry, I didn't have the deep knowledge that I do now, have, having worked in it for almost a decade. Um, what we know is know your client, know your product suitability. And at the end of the day, as investors, we just want to know that we're going to have good outcomes and that we're invested in the right products. And anything that can support that is it is really the was the intention of four eyes and so we had a specific way in which we intended to do that in the beginning um and so um anyway i'll, I'll just kind of leave it there kind of a long answer to your question but no it's um, a good one when you your first entrepreneurial venture even the way you spoke about it at the time it wasn't in the same market you're in now but you even sound like back then you were a problem collector and not a solution collector. But Dan and I, when we support first-time founders, typically we hear a lot of solution collectors before they've collected the problem. Did you just have that instinct? And maybe the real question is, how do we encourage first-time founders to, to get on that path and really dig in and understand the problem first before talking about our great solutions that we all believe we have? I guess I think I have a philo philosophical <laughs> answer to that is I Go think true it. entrepreneurs are problem focused. Yeah, that's certainly the hope. Okay, so let's fast forward then and just get right into it. Um, so the insight was this interdependence. Was there an insight breakthrough that led to the MVP? The, the, for those just listening, the minimum viable product or the first build of Four Eyes? Um, I think that, you know, it, it was really, um, opportunity. Mm -hmm. Um, I saw a need, my, uh, partner in life who is also co-founder in four eyes is a technology entrepreneur, which personally I believe is critical for starting a technology company is to have somebody with some deep expertise and understanding. Um, some subject matter, subject matter expertise and also business building expertise in the space. Um, and so, you know, that, that felt like a good start. Um, I also understood the industry and I had a very strong network in the industry in which we were considering starting a product. I weighed all of these things. I mean, I was in, you know, uh, in my forties when we started this companies and I'd had some successful, successful companies and, and, you know, it, I, I didn't enter into this decision lightly. I knew the risks. Yeah. Uh, I knew what we were trying to achieve. And so I considered what are our chances at winning at this? So do we have the right people? Do we have the right network? Um, can we, you know, engage enough, uh, resource to actually get, uh, minimum viable product into market. Um, you know, our original concept was to build a solution that um, emulated the advice cycle. So that means you literally have to collect information about your client, 
know about product in the marketplace, understand what the person wants to do with that money and pick the right products and make sure they fall within the risk tolerance of the individual. And so, you know, as a, um, you know, a black belt in Lean Six Sigma, it was very much a process approach to how, how does one give advice? And I had the privilege in my consulting work to spend time with uh, the retail investment part of the business, the high net worth client and the and the family office. So they're all giving advice to different types of clients. And I'm a, I'm a sameness person. So I'm looking for, you know, what's the same, what is the process here? It deviates of course, from client segment to client segment. And that's what we look to reproduce. There's um, before we get Dan in the mix here, something occurred to me. I just wrote down the word technical because you um, you spurred an anxiety that I have about myself. Having someone that's technical on the founder team when building a tech solution sounds obvious, but not everyone is natively tech. So for example, I can boot up a software stack to create a solution, as I have done many times in the past, but I can't build the software. But I do have a bit of anxiety that I can't build the software. I had an interaction with Toby Lutke, the CEO of Shopify on Twitter, and I said to him, I said, I said, Toby, what's the answer here? If somebody is is non-technical, is the only solution and the only advice get technical? And he responded in his classic German Canadian way. He said, yes, it's technology time on planet Earth. Get technical. That was his answer. He's like, sorry, you just have to. But if you don't have technical talent on the founder team for folks listening, how critical is it to, re- to recruit it? Does it need to be at the founder level or do you just need to recruit great people early on that are highly technical? It de- depends on your funding. <laughs> yeah, good point. Do you want to unpack that? Meaning just if you can afford well, them? Well, I don't know how easy it is to find a solid technical partner to start a, a startup in the innovation space without them having a significant personal investment in the company. Mm-hmm. You're not going to hire for that talent uh, if with an idea. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. That's my. But Dan, it, what do you think about that? And maybe this is a good time to mix in the idea of a sales-focused founder. Well, you know, I I, I remember a uh, a tech company that from Northern New Brunswick that we helped for a while, and they did not have a technical founder, but they had an immense knowledge of the space they were in because they ran a company that would effectively represent their customers. So they really understood the business, the processes, the problems they were solving, immense knowledge there. Uh, But it it didn't work because they had to outsource the development of the technology. Hmm. And uh, which, you know, drove the cost and Laurie can talk a little bit about you know how you fund early development of technology without spending a ton of money, um, but it also didn't allow them to have much flexibility in in you know driving the features and where their tech was and um, and you know and I think that there's a deep knowledge not just in building the software as you describe it, Matt but also in building the operating environment around the software, which is mm-hmm. equally complex. And uh, certainly in a SaaS world is very complex. And, and how, you know, how you do that um, 
from a perspective that works for your customers and their data sets and all that is really important. So uh, I agree with Laurie. You know, you have to have a, a, a bought-in uh, tech uh, co-founder or investor, and if if they've invested in the business, then um, then their commitment's going to be that much deeper, and uh, they're going to you know go through all those very difficult times and getting that software to where it needs to be. How do we ensure that we have sales focused founders? Lori, Dan, and I, with some um, of our collaborators, are building what we hope is going to be a solution for founders who are product and solution focused to becoming sales focused really early on. Did you have that bent naturally? And if you didn't, how do you create a sales focused founder or how do you turn yourself into a sales focused founder? Well, I guess, first of all, I don't think that the founder needs to be everything. So I think it's great that you're trying to create some awareness and skill set in founders around sales. Um, that is something I actually think you can outsource. Um, but uh, I'm not sure if you're talking about sales or you're talking about a business acumen. I just want to clarify before I answer. Maybe a little bit of both, but why don't we double click on on actually selling the solution? Okay. So, because sales is very different than being profitable or having good business acumen as well. So, um, so, um, so I would, you know, as part of the consulting work that we did, I used to run a cons- uh, something called premium price selling. I trained people and coached organizations in this. So clearly I have some competency there. I felt very strong in my ability to do complex sales. Um, our original version of um, uh, with Four Eyes, our product was actually a B2C solution that made me uncomfortable, quite frankly, because that was not my area of expertise. I mean, mm-hmm. I get I get it, um, but it's very different than, um, a, you know, uh, B2B sales. So, um, initially, you know, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I would, I learned what I would say are more the interest and awareness parts of the sales process because we were focused in that area. So that was helpful for my own personal growth and development. Mm -hmm. Um, but certainly, I mean, it's, uh, it's, I, I understand how to build a sales organization, which is different than being a sales focused founder. Um, com- comfortable, you know, I'm a process person, so I have a plan and a process around everything. That's not what you need in a sales focused founder, but maybe it gives them some confidence and comfort um, to have that. Um, knowing what to do, but also being able to do it. Right. So there's, you know, when it comes to sales, you can have a great, you know, there's a difference between a great sales manager and a great salesperson. So, Hmm. you know, what, what is it that you're trying to impart on these founders? I'm curious, because I've never heard the concept of a sales focused founder. In, in fact, most founders are naturally from my, you know, I'm, I would consider myself an operator, by the way, I'm not like mm-hmm. a super flashy out there, I'm going to sell my big idea with nothing behind it. And people are going to give me tens of hundreds of millions of dollars, like those people exist, and they do really well at raising money because of that. If you can raise money, you can also sign clients. I mean, it's the same competency and skill set. 
um, if you can convince people that your idea is going to change the world, then you're going to, you're going to be all right. You need to back mm -hmm. that up with some other things, but, um, that's different than actually running a sales organization. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, actually, I have a question for you on my list at some point for, um, about raising money. And I'm curious about your take on that, but Dan, do you want to piggyback on that before we get to double clicking on the lead customer journey? Yeah, the you know, uh, and I was thinking of a couple of examples, um, and so you you've got the peer. Uh, I have a friend who's sort of invested. He's an he's a angel investor, invests in a lot of different companies, and uh, he once told me. Um, and, and by the way, this number changes every time we talk to him, so I'm not sure where he's at right now. But he once said, "Look, if if somebody's asking me to invest in their company." I ask them what they're going to do with the money, which is a pretty standard question. Um, and if I don't see that they're going to spend at least, and this is the number that changes, 50%, 40% of that money on sales and marketing, then I don't invest. And uh, because he's come to learn that uh, in, these, in these, especially in the technology space, uh, founders who are technologists by trade, so they come from that side of the equation, just want to spend the money on building their cool technology. And, um, and, and they don't have a plan for sales. And uh, it's something they're going to do off the side of their desk. It's not, it's not something that they're going to focus and invest in. And, uh, and, and so uh, that's what we mean by um, a sales-focused founder. They don't necessarily have to have a sales background or competencies in the space, but they need to have a plan for sales. And I love your notion. You don't have to be a sales expert. You have to recognize that that's important, though. Yeah. And you have to have a plan on how you're going to do it, whether you're going to hire people or partner or, uh, you know, who's going to actually go out and do the hard work, especially in the B2B space, in the hard work of doing that sales. Because we know the cycles can be long and complex and you're building relationships and brand and all that sort of thing. So that that was one. Uh, the other example, Matt, is uh, recently uh, spent some time with a guy who's actually a plastic surgeon in Toronto and he's got a tech startup. Um relative to his space and uh, although he's not a tech guy he's surrounded himself with a lot of a lot of people that can build some great technology he's got an ai solution um but he doesn't have a sales plan either <laughs> and he's looking for help in uh which is why we were talking to him in you know how to actually get that product to market and uh and so we see a lot of this you know it's not just pure tech founders, we see a lot of this people that want to start up a company that has a complex product in a complex market that don't have a sales plan. And uh, uh, so that's that's the question. You know, I love your your view on that, Lori, because uh, you guys you know came in with that sales experience, although you probably still spent most of your money on your tech. Um, uh, you know, you had the capacity to go out and uh, and you know, create those relationships or use the ones that you had and, and uh, build that brand in the market and ultimately drive some sales. Yeah, we had a real event. I mean, you know, being a late, you know, uh, not an early stage founder, meaning, you know, Kendall and I are not young, <laughs> you know, and having some experience, background, knowledge, you know, school of hard knocks behind you, um, and having built out some, you know, some pretty strong competencies, 
uh, Kendall on, you know, the prod, I would say product visionary and product build side and myself on the business development, brand building, um, you know, operational excellence from a, how to build out a, a company. Um, without those, you know, without those two strengths holding up the company, it, you know, it would be like, it's hard anyway. I, I just, I think it would be very, very difficult. And I, I, I kind of go back to the idea of business acumen because, um, you're right, Dan, you know, we invest a lot in our, in our tech and there's also another sort of way to think about sales, which is product led. And that is, you know, a popular topic and conversation of the day. Um, product-led sales, which I'm a fan of, it is, you know, you, if you build a really good product, it will speak for itself in the market. Sales is very different today than it was even 10 years ago and how you go about selling. Um, if you have a founder that understands business, they are going to understand that they need to make money and that the, having a plan to do that is really important. Um, I think, you know, when I used to teach sales, sales for not like for, um, you know, for the majority of people is a word that doesn't really resonate. Um, it's, and it doesn't have to, uh, they need to understand that they have to make money and how are you going to get this product to market? I'm going to go back to my definition of entrepreneurs. And I think when you can get at the heart of why a person is starting a business and true entrepreneurs want to build th things that get out into people's hands that they can use. So you don't even need to call it sales. You, you just call it completing your mission as an entrepreneur. You know, if you're building stuff that no one uses, you're not um, an entrepreneur. And quite frankly, that, you know, that means um, you, you failed. So, I, and I think that anyone who's willing to take on such an incredibly huge endeavor um, and risk and f feels passionate about what they're building is going to feel equally passionate about getting it into the hands of people. They may not have the skills or ability to, uh, to get it into the hands of people, um, but job one is hiring somebody who can. Yeah. If you're not, if you're not, I like actually just love your practicality. If you're not selling your solution, you're just tinkering, which is still fun, but it's not building a business. Well, you don't get to even build it. Mm -hmm. No one's going to pay you for that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, lo I love your notion about business acumen because, uh, the, the journey's fun, but it's not practical if you can't if you can't make money and you can't get to that break even point sooner rather than later, um, and then and a Dan, point where Dan you Dan understand how to grow too, like, Oh, sorry, Dan. and on that, like to your, to a point that I that I know that you uh, are in full agreement with is if you know what's interesting is people who get early investment and big investment have a are more likely to actually be more focused on building their solutions and focused on selling their solutions because they don't have to sell it. <laughs> hmm. You know, like you, you don't have a, you, if you don't have any money, you don't have a, a business and that is, you know, and if you can't demonstrate that you have a way to, um, to make money, then you don't have a business. And yes, there's something to be said for how will you go about getting follow on investment and those kinds of things that's different, right? 
than actually selling your product into the marketplace. And there are many, you know, um, innovative companies that are very good at raising capital, but not at actually getting their product into, uh, I would say, um, a sustainable release into the marketplace. Yeah, you know, you talk about a real pet peeve of mine, and that's when you when you talk to entrepreneurs and especially in the tech space, and they always they lead the conversation with their next ra- raise. You know, we're, we're successful because we're we're we've raised some money, or we're we're feeling good about our next round. And if they lead the conversation with that, like I always view raising money as just an evil necessity, really. And um, what you should be talking about is your customers and your products and your sales and your funnel. And um, yeah, raising money is not a bad thing if you want to grow your business. And but uh, it's it's not it's not uh, a, the definition of success by any means. So I think we're in violent agreement over that one for sure. Um, Lori, when do you raise money? When does an entrepreneur raise money? Um, it, it that is, there's no one answer to that to that question. I actually we had our holi- our four eyes holiday party on Friday, which was a lot of fun. We didn't get invited. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Next and um, yeah, we had. I had a young a young man here who is um, doing his master's in uh, data science at Saint Avex, and they're on um, a nine month work term here. And I had a really nice conversation with him on Friday. He has some entrepreneurial inclinations, and so you know he asked me a lot of questions about the how tos. Um, a lot of people think it's about the idea. So to your earlier point in the conversation, um, uh, you know, I had a good idea. How do you come up with the ideas? Like I, and I said to him, ideas are a dime a dozen. Like it's not like it, yeah, they're not nothing, rare. To, nothing to do with your idea. Like, you know, it's all about, can you do something with that idea? What are you going to do with it? And in order to do anything with an idea, you need to have backing of some sort. You need support, you need resources. Um, so you can find those in a multitude of ways. You know, I was fortunate to be able to bootstrap the company from my previous efforts for a couple of years. Um, uh, we were able to draw in resources of talented people who were willing to do work to build a minimum viable product. And all I had to do was make dinner for them every night, really improve my cooking group, cooking skills. So yeah. Yeah. as a side benefit, um, you know, you basically have to do whatever is needed to get it done. Um, I was, uh, at this stage of our company, we get a lot of reach outs from growth equity firms. We're on some algorithm. And I, I was talking to um, uh, some folks in on, on their website. And, and I, I mean, they're all different to some extent. But what I really loved about this these folks I talked to yesterday is on their website, they have um, the companies that they didn't invest in early on. And... Um, it's a really great example for anyone who's thinking about a startup or going out and getting invested. I mean, you do need cash to start a business, um, but there are a lot of no's out there. And so on their list were like Airbnb, Google, uh, you know, like <laughs> Apple. <laughs> and uh, you know, like, keep I, them up I, at night. 
I just, I just love it. Right. Like super early stage, they could have gotten in. And, and I, I just love the sentiment of putting that on their website. And I think it's good for, you know, people start thinking of a startup or thinking about you're going to get a lot of no's doesn't mean you're not going to be successful. Um, but, uh, I think it's really the, the, the entrepreneurs uh, and founders' job to figure out when to take money, and it actually is a question that never ends. Mm-hmm. I, it's it's still top thought in my mind. Yeah, and I know Dan has some insight here too. But one of the things we talked about before speaking to you is how different is raising your first bucket of money versus subsequent buckets, and how do you do that calculus, which is what you just alluded to. Yeah, well, I think it's helpful if your first round has super deep pockets because they're going to invest in the second and third round. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's, you know, we did not go about a traditional sort of, uh, but but I also think there's not really one way to do anything and certainly not in the space of starting a company um, in the tech space and especially something that is innovative um, and uh, I would say some with a high degree of complexity in the tech itself and the sales process, you know, you look, you, you don't think of those things day one, you, you, you contemplate them, but it's only after you've lived them that you really deeply understand them like everything in life. Right. Yeah, no doubt. Dan, what comes to mind there? Um, what actually, I, I think this is a good segue, Matt, Sure. I know this was in my role, but uh, it's a good segue, segue into the back to the lead customer story because Lori has a really good story there that I that I you know that we can all benefit from hearing and uh, uh, and so and, and it's related actually it's related to, uh, depending on how much she wants to share but uh, why don't why don't we talk a bit about that at this point? Sure. Um, so. When we started selling our ideas on, we call it on the street, you know, we spent all Mm -hmm. of our time in Toronto on Bay Street, you know, meeting with investment firms. um, And everybody agreed that there was a gap in the market. Everybody agreed that the solution was fantastic. Um, It's a very conservative industry, as we know, financial services, and in particular, the wealth management um, part of uh, financial services, particularly conservative Um, and so, you know, great that there's a need, great that they love the product, but as we all know in every, you know, every new, and it's for who's going to be the first mover. And Mm -hmm. we had a meeting with a gentleman, uh, who in our initial meeting and introduction defined himself as an entrepreneur. And I felt like in that moment, I, honestly knew who our first customer was going to be because that is the kind of person that you need to embrace the risk and ambiguity and uncertainty. And this gentleman, um, was on his second, starting his, uh, second company. Actually, I think it was his third company in the investment space, um, knew it very well. And, um, what I really was compelled to, uh, this individual because he, his motivation was 
he wanted to engage with, uh, with firms that were on the same mission as he was on. And our missions aligned completely. We were um, in complete agreement that, and you know, that better investor outcomes is what we were after. That's what he was after. And it's what we were after. In fact, you know, you asked about the origin story of Four Eyes. A big part of it too was as an investor myself, it was the only area of my life that I felt uncertain. I didn't mm -hmm. feel like I understood and it was very difficult to understand, to make good choice. And, um, you know, health and wealth are the two pillars of a successful life. And I, you know, I just felt like very vulnerable in that part of my life and felt very strongly that I knew a lot of smart people that were hands off in that part of their life. It could be very detrimental. I've seen people fail and then families fail because they make poor choice because they don't have that understanding or support or good advice. And I was really attracted to the person who happened to be the owner of an investment firm. And he was attracted to our passion in the aligned purpose. And, uh, and he liked what he saw in terms of the minimum viable product. And with that, we, you know, um, we had conversation. We did a small data project for his company as kind of a trial to see if we could work together and to build confidence. So um, that small trial enabled us to hire our, you know, our, uh, our first person in the company. And um, that was a success. So then, you know, they put forward uh, a term sheet and that happened rather quickly. Um, part of the terms included for us, we wanted to have them as a customer. Um, and once they reached a certain amount of annual recurring revenue, then there would be some additional benefit for them in that, mm. in that term, in the term sheet. Um, so there was a win-win uh, for both of us. And um, that partnership has proven to be extremely successful for both of us. When you think about the lifespan of the business, and I know I, I just interrupted you, Dan, is this guy an inflection point? Is this guy a turning point in the path of Four Eyes? Well, without customers or money, <laughs> which he brought, he brought both. <laughs> yeah. It also speaks to the, the three-legged stool idea of what, what he got out of it. So it's cool that you got creative with the terms as well. Dan, I interrupted you. Well, uh, I wanted uh, Lori to uh, maybe explain a little bit deeper about uh, our definition of a lead customer. We said a lead customer is somebody who helps you innovate with your product. And I think he brought you into the reg tech space uh, a little deeper than you were. And, yeah. and also, uh, probably importantly, uh, how he helped you sell your next customer. Because so we said those are two important facets of who a lead customer is. And I'm wondering if you can uh, sort of give us a sense of uh, how those worked with, with this particular gentleman. Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the things that, uh, so, so before we actually met or during around the same time we met with Chris, so sort of before we met with Chris, we met with a compliance officer at a company called world source and um, they looked at our B2C solution and said, we could use this in our compliance department for suitability. 
and you know, we were thinking suitability, well, just from the individual's perspective, we hadn't really thought about it from the firm perspective. And so we, you know, we had kind of seen that we need to make that that pivot into from B to C to B to B. And then we started kind of hitting the street really hard when we met Chris. So we had, you know, we had said, you know, we're looking at the, I would say the the whole process. And what Chris suggested to us is, you know what, I already have some of the pieces of your solution set because we had an entire workflow built out and we actually have a platform as a service. So he said, I just want this last piece, but I want to build out on it to enable our compliance departments to actually do their trade surveillance and suitability reviews, which was a deviation. It was a net new build and it was um, an opportunity for us, which, you know, it's the conversation that you guys were having at the start around um, a customer that sees a need in the marketplace. Now, you know, he, he demonstrated to us that this wasn't just a need for his firm. This was a need for all of the firms of his size. Um, and he taught, you know, he said that it is a main topic of conversation at their, um, they had a committee meet. He was involved with the regulatory, uh, IROC and with their, um, their, their committees. And this was a regular topic of conversation with the folks who were making decisions. They said there were things that they couldn't do that they really needed to do from a regulatory perspective, and they were looking for solutions. So the list of potential clients were those committee members. And that was a big part of why we agreed to actually go down the path. So it from day one, it was, you know, what's in it for you? What's in it for me? What's in it for the industry? Is this something, I mean, these are not small tweaks and like this was a 12 month build, um, in partnership with their, uh, heads of compliance. Yeah, that's amazing. I have another entrepreneur in mind who we're going to be speaking to soon, but the fact that those committee members then become the list of future potential clients, is really cool. So that that guy, you know, led you at least hovering around the promised land. Oh, okay. oh, absolutely. And was, you know, as because of his entrepreneurial approach to things was uh, and is a very strong leader and people follow the leader, right? Someone's got to take that first risky step forward and this gentleman um more than happy to be the one to do that. And so, you know, once once you put yourself out there, it's a small in Canada most B2B marketplace are pretty small. It's concentrated. Everybody knows what everybody's up to. Um, so once you've made that decision, you know, there's risk for, for, of course, him and his firm as well. And so you want this to look good. Everybody's watching. We are always aware of our guests' time. Last thread here, Lori. What's up in 2023? What's the plan after the holidays? Where does Four Eyes go for the next year? Is it is well, it growth mode? What stage are we in? Um, I'm, I look at 23 for us as a year of stabilization. <laughs> you want to expand on that or is that good? <laughs> I can go for it. Um, so we have built, um, an extremely powerful platform as a service mm -hmm. with multiple products that really drive our land and expand sales strategy. And, um, we are, you know, selling multiple products into existing clients 
And this is a, a good year for us to really stabilize um, the business in terms of the, the products themselves, mm -hmm. our own internal processes. Um, that doesn't mean that we aren't growing. We actually are anticipating significant growth, um, particularly coming from the work that's been done before. Um, the great thing about B2B sales um, in when you're, you know, an integral part of your client's uh, ecosystem is that they're not removing you anytime soon. Um, and so we can build on the strength of the work that we've done. And um, you reach a tipping point in a marketplace where it's follow the leader. And so we have some significant clients and uh, others that are making moves. And so, um, you know, we're, we're it, it doesn't mean we're still not focusing on growth and adding net new clients and adding revenue from existing clients. It's just if there was one word to describe 23, it would be stabilized. And we'll make sure our audience has all of the relevant links for social and the website in our show notes so they can find Four Eyes. And before I give Dan the last word, Lori, I got to say, these are a, these are a, a huge treat. Uh, I love to nerd out on this stuff. So having a, having an hour with you is, is a heck of a lot of fun. And I aspire to your level of practicality as well. So, so thanks for, uh, thanks for walking us down the path. It's very nice of you to call it that. <laughs> thanks for walking us down the path. And I'll, uh, I'll give Dan the last word to tie a bow on it if he's got anything else. And then we'll wrap this up. Yeah, well, you know, thanks for sharing all that with us, Lori. And uh, I, I guess I would just like to say, you know, Four Eyes is... Uh, so a company we're very proud of in our region, and they're just quietly going about growing their business. And uh, stability is likely code for a different kind of growth, but I'm sure there's going to be lots more news on Four Eyes in the future. So congratulations on where you're at, and look forward to our next chat. Thanks so much, Dan, and thanks for uh, all you do for the community of people looking to make a difference. Thanks, everybody, for Eyes Financial. 